A trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome to the show. Thanks for being a part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. I know it sounds like a negative thing. A wrong thinker? I would never want to be accused of such a thing. Trust me, it's a compliment. It's it's a willingness to assert your own autonomy, your own self-determination, and most of all, the willingness to own your own worldview and opinions in the face of, well, let's just say a lot of forces that would like to coerce you to think one way or the other. I like how Tom Woods describes it as that 3 by 5 index card of allowable opinion. Anytime someone says, oh, no, 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 you can't talk about that, little little red flag should start popping up as to why don't they want me to talk about this or why don't they want me to think a certain way. Anyhow, glad you're part of the show. Our program is brought to you by our friends at firesteel.com. By the way, today is the last day, so take advantage if you have not been to their website yet and you haven't checked out all the amazing fire-starting tools that they have to offer. Seriously consider whether this is something you would want in your 72-hour kit, maybe your vehicle emergency kit, or maybe just lay some of these aside for either uh, presents, you know, holiday season's coming up, or uh, maybe uh, you would want to just have it as part of your long-term emergency preps. The ability to start a fire with one of their incredible magnesium fire starters, their ferro rods, their, their gob sparks. Best of all, today's the final day. For you to plug in the coupon code BRIAN, that's B-R-Y-A-N, put my name in when you make your purchase, they will take 10% off your purchase. It'll save you some money. Firesteel.com. Also want to thank the, uh, Tur- the Staples Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage for being our sponsors. Let's jump right in. One of the biggest challenges that we face today is not getting caught up in the hatred and let me explain what I'm talking about, because I look, I'm so guilty of this. When I get on Twitter, there are certain people that I follow. One of them is Andy No, who is, uh, I, I think he's a marvelous journalist, but he is probably one of the best investigative journalists out there documenting and showing, here is what Antifa is up to. And the funny thing is, you know, you look at a lot of the, the heritage press, and, and frankly, there's a lot of people out there who are just like, there's no such thing as Antifa. That's just a figment of your imagination. Any violence you're seeing out there is just a bunch of boogaloo boys dressed up like these little Marxist revolutionaries, and now they're causing trouble. Andy No puts the lie to that spin and shows you. He's very good at posting videos of here's what they're up to. This is what they're doing. Here's who's been arrested. And, and you start to see... There's a very clear pattern with these these people, and I'm just going off the mugshots, and I'm going to apologize in advance because what I'm going to say here is going to sound terribly insensitive. But when you look at the mugshots, particularly of these Antifa folks arrested in Portland, without the mask, not hiding behind the goggles or their their balaclavas, you know, what, what they use to conceal their identity so that they can, can do their agitation, their, their attacks on people with relative anonymity. You see the faces of some very sad individuals. And, and I don't know any way to put this, so I'm just going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to be blunt. There is a darkness in their eyes. There, there is no light. There's no happiness. 
and they are doing some really reprehensible things. I mean, these are the people who go up and scream in, in elderly people's faces, calling them Nazis when they've done nothing. They're walking to trying to cross the street, but they've got some young, you know, Antifa, so-called anti-fascist, who's acting like a fascist, standing there screaming in their faces and threatening them. It's some of the ugliest stuff that I've seen in my lifetime. And the problem is, when I watch these videos, it brings anger right to the surface. And I know I'm not the only one who feels this way. I've talked to plenty of people who've said, yeah, I have to be really careful before I start watching that kind of stuff because it's, uh, it, it's, it's a kind of war porn. It, it excites a part of your brain or stimulates a part of your brain that's very primal and, and very negative. And I'm just going to come right out and say, I think, it, I think it brings darkness into our lives when we indulge that part of our brains. And, and so I'm trying to be very careful not to indulge it too much. Now, having said that, if I'm scrolling through Twitter and I see, oh, look, here's a new, uh, here's a new video of, uh, of Antifa attacking somebody or burning somebody or, you know, whatever they're doing, I, uh, I more often than not will pause and see, is it as bad as I thought? And, and it almost always is. So here's the, here's the challenge for us. How can we love what's good, what's right, what's noble? How can we love things like liberty or individual conscience or free markets more than we hate our foes? And I say this with the understanding that most of us aren't going out there looking for foes. I, I don't know very many people who are, are, are that enemy-driven. We all know somebody who is, but um, you notice you, you probably don't, try to spend a whole lot of time in their company because they're just not fun to be around. They're always, there's always somebody or something to blame. But in this case, you have an opponent that is seeking you out no matter how neutral you are, no matter how good or kind or just, you know, how quiet you're just standing by. They will bring the fight to you and sit there and provoke you and provoke you until you react. And if you react, ah, see, that proves you're my enemy. Jeff Minnick, writing for intellectualtakeout.org has a really solid take on how, rather than just you know succumbing to the anger, maybe we should feel a bit of pity for those who are caught up in this kind of uh, spiritual darkness. Here's what he talks about. He says, first of all, he has a quote from uh, Dante's uh, uh, Divine Comedy. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. You're probably familiar with this, right? That's the inscription hung above the gates of hell. Today, he says, abandon hope, all ye who enter here might serve as the perfect slogan for that band of anarchists, Marxists, thugs, and all-around loonies running amok in our cities, who appear in the media bemoaning the evils of America, who seek to cancel culture and their opponents by mobbing dissenters on social media and who revel in destruction rather than in creation. Jeff says, Recently a friend wondered aloud how people faced such disasters as COVID-19 and the looting and the burning in so many of our cities without a belief in God. A devout Christian, she couldn't imagine coping with these horrible disasters, and indeed with everyday life, without her faith. And he says her musings ignited a series of questions about the vandals bringing destruction to our urban streets. And I think this is, this is the, the key thing. What's going on in their heads? He says, how do those who torch a small business feel about themselves? Perhaps they're proud of what they've done? Perhaps they lack empathy, unable to see in their mind's eye the anguish of the husband and wife who spent the last 20 years investing themselves in that enterprise. Do they ever stop in the middle of trashing a 7-Eleven and ask themselves, what on earth am I doing? What about the Marxists and anarchists directing this revolution? 
They seem to truly believe that destruction will bring an end to an evil America, that making an omelet means breaking a few eggs, or that they will someday achieve utopia by wreaking havoc. Do they find joy in their lives, or are they miserable and sour all the time like some? When everything is political, an expression I detest, he says, can anything at all be fun? These are good questions. And what of those politicians and members of the mainstream media who condone, justify, or approve of these vicious attempts to shred our culture and civilization? Do they ever consider the lives damaged by their failure to take action, to speak out against the violence, to quell the riots with police and the National Guard? Jeff Minnick says they may sleep like the proverbial babe, happy with the chaos they've helped create, or perhaps they still have a bit of conscience, which causes them to jerk awake in the middle of the night, fearful they've made terrible decisions. For the entire summer, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, and various other groups have savaged some of our cities. Murder rates in places like Chicago, New York, and Philadelphia have also skyrocketed, another sign of the collapse of law and order. For the entire summer, most of us watching this violence either shake our heads in astonishment or rage at the destruction. He says, I have long felt disgust with these people who've wrecked so many lives and livelihoods. But he says, beginning today, inspired by the thoughts of my friend, I will mingle pity with that revulsion. Can you imagine living like one of these protesters? Can you imagine walking through every hour of every day so embittered and crazed? Can you imagine a life where you judge everything by politics? Where, for example, you see a young woman laughing with delight while water skiing, and all you can think of is the damage she's doing to the environment? Can you imagine bragging about that brick you hurled through the plate glass window of a small jewelry store? Can you imagine the, how miserable a human being you'd have to be to yell obscenities at a woman old enough to be your grandmother? Can you imagine yourself being so petty of soul, so without honor and dignity, that you would give yourself over to the mob without shame. Jeff Minnick says, I can't. For the life of me, I truly can't enduring, I can't imagine enduring such a wretched, nihilistic life. And he says, and I thought I possessed a pretty good imagination. Now he has an answer here, and we're going to come back to this just the other side of the break, about where his focus will go instead. It's good advice. I think I'm going to put this to use as well. Stick around. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, thanks for joining us here on the show. By the way, if you enjoy the different uh, articles, essays, commentaries, or even the guests that I have on this program... Make sure you are stopping by my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, and checking out the show notes. There are always articles I don't have time to get to. I put them there just because I think, hey, this might provoke some, some interesting thought or maybe even some interesting discussion. And by the way, you can give me feedback there on the website. You can shoot me an email. You can drop a comment. Whatever you would like, I would love to hear from you. I also would love it if you would subscribe to the podcast and maybe even consider becoming a patron supporter of The Brian Hyde Show. It's all right there at the website, thebrianhydeshow.com. So I've been sharing this article from Jeff Minnick from Intellectual Takeout, A Walk on the Dark Side. 
And I love that he is asking the question instead of just, you know, look, it's easy to condemn these punks, these thieves, these radicals out there in the streets throwing bricks and firing up buildings and beating people and just spreading hatred and anger everywhere they go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's easy to stand against them, right? I mean, it's clear. A lot of what they're doing is just reprehensible. But I like that Jeff Minnick is saying, hey, mixed in with the revulsion that I feel for what they're doing, I have to feel a bit of pity. And he asks you to consider, can you imagine how miserable a person you'd have to be to stoop to the kind of activities that are being done by these groups on a regular basis or by individuals within these groups on a regular basis? He says, like many readers, I suspect my moods bounce up and down these days. Just when I think the news has reached an extreme beyond which there is no passage, some new headline will shock or anger me. And he's right on when he says, we live in crazy and unhappy times. He says, like many readers, however, I also experience bits and pieces of joy throughout my day. Moments that surprise me or moments that by force of will I create. A phone conversation with a friend a cheery greeting from one of the employees at the little store near my house, the sparkling eyes of the barista in my coffee shop when she talks about her little nephew. So he says, when I read of the latest outrage in Minneapolis or Kenosha, Wisconsin or Washington, D.C., I'll continue to wish for more arrests for those rioters and looters to get the justice they deserve. I'll still feel repulsed by their destruction and nightmarish chaos. But he says, I will also pity them because I can't imagine living in such a place of spiritual darkness. I don't know why that hit me hard, though. And and, and it, it was a reminder to me that no matter how ugly a person is behaving, that person is a child of God. And I know that that's, that's a tough thing for people to reconcile. Yeah, well, they're not behaving like one. That's right. All of us, at some point or another, don't behave like one. But if you are a person who believes in God, if you believe in the golden rule, if you believe that, uh, you know, the same way that you judge others is the way that you will be judged, or if you just simply believe that great commandment, uh, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. How about love your enemies? Pray for the people who spitefully use you. That's probably the toughest thing that Jesus asked of anybody who follows him is, you know, the people who are sitting there trying to persecute you and beat you and and shout horrible things at you and defame you and deplatform you and dox you, you need to love them. Why? Well, because God loves them. Imperfect and angry as they may be, he loves them. And for me, that's just a reminder that uh, we have a duty to 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 recognize that they are his children as well. Now, I'm not saying that means you should be a doormat. But I'm saying that in every human being, no matter how radicalized, no matter how angry, there's a a soul that's of great worth. And that's easy to forget when hatred is what's driving us. I'm sorry, this, this took a much more spiritual turn than I really intended, but I hope you can see what I'm trying to make out here. Nothing is going to improve by adding more anger or more hate to the situation. The only time in my life that I ever really made like a direct turnaround change was when I felt unconditional love from someone despite how wrong I was in that moment. They saw that I could be better than I was, and I don't know, it kindled a light in my heart that made me go, 
I not only can be better, I need to be better. And that's when the change started. So my point is just don't lose sight of that. Don't become what you ostensibly are fighting against. Something which I think Antifa, that's advice they should probably take to heart because if they're fighting fascism, they're doing an awfully good impression of what a fascist would do in the process of supposedly ridding the world of that particular ill. Let's uh, shift gears here for a moment. I want to talk a little bit about uh, about the face mask controversy, but I have something here that hopefully goes beyond that. Um, look, you know, when it comes to wearing face masks, this is one of those places where it can be seen just how tough it is to establish and maintain your personal boundaries. And for those who've said, hey, I'm not going to mask up, you're going to get pushback. And you do get pushback depending on where you go. Alan Stevo has had some marvelous essays on this published on LewRockwell.com. And he has a really great one today, which applies to much more than just the wearing of face masks. And it's advice on how to stand your ground when someone is trying to bully you. Here's what he says. He says, a wise man once said, you're either selling or being sold. Now, Alan Stevo says, I disagree with his dichotomous and adversarial view of life, but indeed, there are some people who constantly look for someone to push around and for whom this approach toward life becomes self-fulfilling. They are the bullies, the psychopaths, the sociopaths, and the cowards. He says, this group moves around life looking for key indicators in those around them that communicate, communicate to the predator, I have an in. I have a hook. I can get this guy. These people are a key reason that it's disadvantageous to talk about your health, disability, religion, or any other matter when trying to invoke a face mask exemption. And so his advice is don't say anything more than, I am unable to wear a face mask safely. That's it. Leave it there. Pushy people like those mentioned above will seek to push against you and traverse your boundaries. And Alan Stevo says, don't be bothered by that. That's what these people do. Bullies bully people. That's why we call them bullies. If that wasn't what got them out of bed in the morning, they wouldn't be called bullies. They live for it. And he says, bullies tend to flock towards positions where they can get away with bullying, perhaps even be rewarded for it. The rise of corona communism has opened up a new avenue by which bullies can bully. Their face mask compliance checkpoints are one of the many new experiences for a bully to do their thing. And he says, and you, my friend, you are expected to do your thing. He says, you know better than me what that is, for I don't even know you. But if you found this piece of writing, we probably have a few things in common. We might both believe that people with face mask exemptions, exemptions rather, shouldn't be bullied into wearing them. We might both despise tyrants. We might both even believe that it's not the tyrant's fault if a person chooses to be so oppressible. Each person must stand up for themselves. Now, there's excellent axiomatic reasons around privacy and decency. It's just none of their business, no matter how much they might push and probe you. Their pushing and probing should not shock you, no matter how excessive or sincere it seems, because, again, this is to be expected of anyone in a position that attracts bullies. Instead of being bugged by their bullying when at a loss for what to do, best to laugh out loud at them. It's never easy to tell if a person laughed out loud intentionally or accidentally. It messes with a bully's head. With a bully, you can establish good boundaries now or you can establish not-so-good boundaries later. Now will be easier. Later will be more painful. And so he says, if you don't set a firm boundary around your health and well-being, you're going to find yourself faced with renewed Punish or pushiness, rather, from a bully. Seeing the world as a zero-sum game 
the division a division between the haves and have-nots. Every interaction is having either a loser or a winner, an oppressor or a victim. The bully doesn't really comprehend the word co- uh, cooperation, rather, but truly and deeply understands the word compliance. Though commonly exchanged with each other as near synonyms, how incredibly different those two words are. How true. He says, you see, compliance may not provide satisfaction for a bully. Compliance may signal weakness. The more outlandish the request, the more well-intentioned your cooperation will signal to the bully that you desire to be made into an easy victim. That's why you must never comply with requests from strangers who you don't have a long-standing relationship with. You do yourself a disservice. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So I was just sharing with you this commentary from Alan Stevo about uh, never explaining your face mask exemption, setting up your boundaries. And I like what he says here. I mean, he's, he's definitely giving advice on, look, this is why you stand up to bullies. You don't comply with requests from strangers you don't have a longstanding relationship with. That would just do yourself a disservice. And he says, this is the great ill behind people-pleasing. The negatives have nothing to do with making another person happy. Making another happy can be a wonderful thing to do, but the negatives have to do with how little regard you show for yourself in such moments. And I love this advice. He says, luckily, there are ways to protect yourself from bullies. I don't suggest you walk the path of the contrarian, always saying no. In doing so, you may deny yourself an activity that's actually in your interest. Being so rigid and pre-programmed makes you an easy target for the field of behaviorism called reverse psychology. Instead, it's the identifying of your own boundaries, communicating of your own boundaries, and defending of your own boundaries that should take place in such interactions. That makes sense, right? Alan Stevo says your actions should not be committed out of anything vaguely resembling blind obedience or even blind disobedience. Doing so, especially blind obedience, makes you an easy victim for the bully. And he asks, please, do no such thing at compliance checkpoints. You can give the bully your entire medical history and three doctor's notes at the checkpoint. It might not matter. The bully is going to push further. You can agree to hop through the store unidirectionally and on one leg. The bully will push further. You can invite him home for dinner to spit in your mother's food. The bully will push further. We're going to need you to wear your mask until, is what the bully might say, in response to your sincere and fully transparent explanation of why you need an exemption. Or they might say, well, you can't wear your mask until... Until what? Just fill in the blank based on your exemption. We're going to need you to wear the mask until your heart palpitations begin and you faint. We're going to need you to wear your mask until the panic attacks start and you have to rip it off your face once it's too late to bring the attack back under control. We're going to need you to wear the mask until blood starts coming out of your mouth, a condition someone has recently written him about. Alan Stevo says if you don't say no, it will get worse. The neat thing is, the courageous folks in touch with their own boundaries are rewarded in this situation. They bring the conflict to a head quickly, and they consequently get it resolved relatively painlessly and easily. By saying, I am unable to wear a face mask safely, you quickly draw a boundary and communicate what is needed. If you don't draw a boundary, the bully will wrap you in tricks to take advantage of you and do his best to ruin the most special things about you, anything that you lay bare for that bully. 
Because that's just what bullies do. And that's only one way promiscuity is so harmful. Important human emotions are laid bare before people who do not deserve the trust. Pearls before swine. The odds are not in favor of those who allow intimacy to be pushed into the door of a relationship before the trust necessary to make it a safe environment is earned. Now he says, I don't know what your mask-related health concerns are. It's none of my business. And it's definitely not the business of the compliance checker at the door. Do yourself a favor and keep your private matters to yourself. Do yourself a favor and never again wear a face mask that you are exempt from. He also says, do the world a favor and send me your stories from the compliance checkpoint so we can put an end to this tyranny. I will have a link to this in the show notes, which you can access at thebrianhydeshow.com. Again, this is Alan Stevo and a key reason to never explain your face mask exemption. I really like his take. I think, I think it's very principled, and I think he actually um, has a more gentle approach. I know the blunt force, the you know brute force, let's just bowl him over like so many bowling pins, uh, resonates with a lot of people. I like an approach that is a little more subtle. And what Alan Stevo is describing is a way to take the, w- the wind out of their sails, to, to deflate that puffed-up balloon of authority without them ever realizing. You're not popping it with a pin. You're just letting that balloon deflate, and suddenly they're standing there going, hey, how did that happen? What, and how did I suddenly lose this leverage over you without them ever understanding exactly why or how it happened? All right, shifting gears. I've seen a lot of people commenting the last couple of days about Facebook's new updated terms of service, which will be kicking in on October 1st of this year. Joe Martino, writing for Collective Evolution, has, I think, a pretty timely warning about this, saying many Facebook users have been receiving notifications from Facebook stating that on October 1st, they will be updating their terms of service. And the new changes will allow Facebook to remove content content rather, or restrict access if the company feels it's necessary to avoid legal or regulatory impact. Desktop and mobile users are getting notifications that look like this. Quote, Effective October 1, 2020, Section 3.2 of our Terms of Service will be updated to include, We can also remove or restrict access to your content, services, or information if we determine that doing so is reasonably necessary to avoid or mitigate adverse legal or regulatory impacts to Facebook. End quote. Now, in this case, uh, Joe Martino says users of social media have been rather critical of the recent updates, feeling that it may lead to more censorship or election meddling from big tech companies. Other users feel this could be a great move to get rid of more fake news. And he says, before we move on, don't get me wrong, fake news exists and it is a problem. He says, I've spoken to many other website owners within the independent media community over the years, urging them to take a deeper look at some of the stories they put out and ask whether they are actually true. People can do poor research at times. They can miss important facts. At other times, some websites seek only to make money, and thus they post anything that will get them traffic, even if it's false. That said, much of independent media has been falsely lumped in with those unique cases, making us seem guilty by association as opposed to actually creating false news. In fact, he says, we've had this experience ourselves. As a journalist and publisher for the last 11 years who's not been quiet about political corruption and who has inspired many to transform themselves to transform the world, Joe Martino says, I can say that here at Collective Evolution, we've experienced a great deal of Facebook censorship. 
since Facebook began censoring Collective Evolution's content shortly after the 2016 U.S. presidential election, we've lost millions in revenue and have had to completely restructure our business as a result. This is not something I'm complaining about per se. He says it's more so making you aware of what's happened, all while Facebook simply touted they were just trying to stop fake news and keep quality content on their platform. So he asks, why were we affected under those terms? He says, Facebook's independent fact checkers have come after our content at least 30 plus times. The vast majority of the time, perhaps 95%, fact checkers are flat out wrong about their classification of our content being false. We've chronicled our stories about this many times over, and he has links to examples. He says it takes weeks to speak with them and get the false news strikes removed, costing us reach, revenue, and reputation. Now, he says we would argue that this is the primary motivator behind why fact-checkers classify content as false. By the time a strike gets removed, the damage is already done. People believe the story isn't true, and the company that wrote it loses trust amongst people. So Facebook's terms have always been misleading and vague. One could argue that in some ways, these new ones feel more direct. We're going to delete content. And although that's clear, what's still vague is what they will delete. This makes it very tough for any user or company to know what to do in order to be safe in the eyes of Facebook. He says, really looking at it in plain language, Facebook's updated terms coming into effect October 1st essentially read, we don't care if the content is true, false, legal, or illegal. We will remove anything that may help us not get caught allowing it on our platform. A human rights commenter on Twitter said, disturbing new addition to Facebook terms of service that could be used to justify online censorship, particularly with governments using restrictive national laws to order social media platforms to censor information critical of the government or monarchy in violation of online freedom. Now, Joe Martino says it's certainly reasonable to think Facebook is giving themselves permission to remove content that governments could come after them for. And this is, is this, in essence, government-driven censorship? Well, he says that's hard to say, but I'm sure time will tell. The challenging part, as always, is who decides what's false and not? Who decides what's dangerous? Can true information that the people should know be claimed as false? Can it be claimed as dangerous? And are these new changes coming just in time for the 2020 presidential election in the U.S. so that any dissenting voices can be removed fairly and without reason? Who knows? Joe Martino says, We don't write these stories to predict or even make people fearful of where we're headed. We write them so people are aware of what's at play so we can make different choices in our lives. Without being aware of something and choosing to question, how are we supposed to change the world around us? This wouldn't be the first time efforts have gone into shaping public perception via censoring or hiding information from the people. The CIA's Project Mockingbird was very clear on that. And he says it's more than likely that that project was never actually shut down. The key question is, is what we believe about our world really true? And if it isn't, how do we find truth when independent media is being shut out on social media platforms? Can we truly trust mainstream media with their long-held reputation of poor journalism and deception? This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, welcome back to the show. I always love it when I get a notification in my inbox that Barry Brownstein has a new article published. This is his latest from the American Institute for Economic Research. How Government Sells Fear and Sickness, The Case of the Flu. Barry has a very principled take, and I'm going to have a link to this article in the show notes. Strongly encourage you, go read it for yourself. Um, if, if for no other reason, there are a ton of links and back, and I should say uh, evidence backing up what he is talking about here. And with flu season fast approaching, this is a topic that we really need to pay attention to. Barry Brownstein says, this fall, expect the government-funded flu propaganda machine to be out in full force, telling you that it is your duty to receive a flu vaccination. In language similar to what they use for masks, we're instructed by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to protect yourself and those around you by getting a flu vaccine. Now, he says the University of California system has issued a new mandatory flu vaccine requirement for all faculty, students, and staff. Massachusetts became the first state to issue a flu vaccine mandate for all public school children. Both California and Massachusetts claim their orders will conserve health care resources by avoiding a surge of flu cases at health care facilities. Now, Barry says many of us think we know about the flu vaccine. We believe it prevents the flu or, at the very least, reduces complications from the flu, thus reducing deaths. The flu story we think we know is not supported by medical evidence. The history of the flu vaccine is a cautionary tale about the crony capitalist rush for a COVID-19 vaccine. And here's where he starts connecting the dots. He starts by asking, how effective is the flu vaccine? Peter Doshi, a University of Maryland pharmacy professor, in his 2013 British Medical Journal article, Influenza, Marketing Vaccine by Marketing Disease, writes, Promotion of influenza vaccines is one of the most visible and aggressive public health policies today. In 1990, according to Doshi, 32 million doses of influenza vaccine were available in the United States. For the coming 2020-21 to 21 flu season, the CDC estimates manufacturers will supply between 194 million and 198 million doses of influenza vaccine. Now, for some, this is government at work protecting the public health. For others, this is a case of government expanding the market for protecting vaccine manufacturers. The CDC, Doshi writes, pledges to base all public health decisions on the highest quality scientific data openly and objectively derived. But with flu vaccines, Barry says this is hardly the case. The facts show, Doshi writes, that although proponents employ the rhetoric of science, the studies underlying the policy are often of low quality and do not substantiate officials' claims. Flu vaccines, Doshi continues, might be less beneficial and less safe than has been claimed. And the threat of influenza appears overstated. Now here Barry Brownstein points out that through the 1990s, the at-risk population was the elderly, and promotion campaigns were aimed at them. Today, CDC guidelines have expanded the at-risk population and call for everyone older than six months to get the vaccine. Today, he says, we are warned by the CDC that even healthy people can get the flu, and it can be serious. Fanciful claims are made for the effectiveness of the flu vaccine. Doshi reports on one study in the New England Journal of Medicine that found that flu vaccines reduced deaths from all causes by 48%. Now, that study was funded by the National Vaccine Program Office and the CDC. And Doshi argues this claim is not credible 
since influenza is estimated to cause only about 5% of all wintertime deaths. Tom Jefferson is an epidemiologist and physician associated with Cochrane. Cochrane is an international network of researchers dedicated to compiling and evaluating medical evidence. They, too, find claims that the effectiveness of the flu vaccine are overstated. Jefferson explains, For a vaccine to reduce mortality by 50% and up to 90% in some studies means it has to prevent deaths not just from influenza, but also from falls, fires, heart disease, strokes, and car accidents. That's not a vaccine. That's a miracle. Barry Brownstein says studies of the flu vaccine are corrupted by the healthy user effect. He says Doshi explains that the healthy user effect is a propensity for healthier people to be more likely to get vaccinated than less healthy people. As a result, observational studies of the vaccinated population are biased. In fact, one study suggested the healthy user effect explained the entire benefit that other researchers were attributing to the flu vaccine, suggesting that the vaccine itself might not reduce mortality at all. The CDC itself admits that observational studies are tainted. Quote, studies demonstrating large reductions in hospitalizations and deaths among the vaccinated elderly have been conducted using medical record databases and have not measured reductions in laboratory-confirmed influenza illness. These studies have been challenged because of concerns they've not controlled adequately for differences in the propensity for healthier persons to be more likely than less healthy persons to receive vaccination. End quote. So Doshi asks, if the observational studies can't be trusted, what evidence is there that influenza vaccines reduce the deaths of older people? The reason the policy was originally created. And his answer is virtually none. Doshi says, quote, theoretically, a randomized trial might shine some light or even settle the matter. But there's only been one randomized trial of influenza vaccines in older people conducted two decades ago. And it shows no mortality benefit. That trial wasn't powered to detect decreases in mortality or any complications of influenza. This means influenza vaccines are are approved for use in older people despite any clinical trials demonstrating a reduction in serious outcomes. End quote. Now, Barry Brownstein says Doshi was perplexed by officials' lack of interest in the absence of good quality evidence. What he found was that approval of a flu vaccine is not tied to reduction in serious outcomes. Instead, Doshi reports, approval is instead tied to a demonstrated ability of the vaccine to induce antibody production without any evidence that those antibodies translate into reductions in illness. Now, Barry also points out, similarly, we're told by Dr. Fauci that COVID-19 vaccine trials are a success because they are increasing antibody production. In their Atlantic article, Does the Vaccine Matter?, Shannon Brownlee and uh, Jeannie Lenzer quote Fauci as saying it would be unethical to do a placebo-controlled study of influenza vaccine in older people. Fauci's tautological reason echoes other, quote, experts, since the CDC's standard of care is a flu vaccine, placebo recipients would be deprived of a potentially life-saving medical intervention. Jefferson's work about the flu vaccine raised questions that no doubt should be asked again about a COVID vaccine. Is the vaccine necessary for those in whom it's effective, namely the young and healthy? Conversely, is it effective for those in whom it seems to be necessary, namely the old, the very young, and the infirm? Jefferson's response about the flu vaccine is no. Quote, unfortunately, the very people who need most who most need protection from the flu also have immune systems that are least likely to respond to the vaccine. 
Studies show that young, healthy people mount a glorious immune response to seasonal flu vaccine, and their response reduces their chances of getting the flu, and it may lessen the severity of symptoms if they do get it. But they aren't the people who die from seasonal flu. By contrast, the elderly, particularly those over age 70, don't have a good immune response to vaccine, and they're the ones who account for most flu deaths. End quote. In other words, as Doshi writes, no evidence exists, however, to show that this reduction in risk of symptomatic influenza for a specific population here among healthy adults extrapolates into any reduced risk of serious complications from influenza, such as hospitalizations or death in another population. Complications largely occur among the frail, older population. End quote. Now, Dr. Jefferson says we built huge population-based policies on the flimsiest of scientific evidence. The most unethical thing to do is to carry on business as usual. Yet carry on, the experts do, as they recommend flu vaccine mandates and draconian COVID-19 policies based on flawed models and controversial evidence. There's much more to this article. It is totally worth your time to go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Look it up. It's in the show notes for September 3rd, 2020. Barry Brownstein, How Government Sells Fear and Sickness, The Case of the Flu. I like how he points out here, you don't need a mandate to get a jogger to buy good running shoes. You don't need a mandate for a committed keto eater to seek grass-fed beef. No mandate is needed to convince a vegan of the advantages of eating organic kale. So think about that when we're told, well, this vaccine is mandated. Barry Brownstein says crony capitalists selling cures need government mandates forcing compliance. Using the rhetoric of science, government, and industry cover up for their scientific failure to address the most important clinical outcomes for patients. Good stuff, as always, from my friend Barry Brownstein. And again, thank you so much for being a part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Please take the time to go to the website, thebrianhydeshow.com. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, please do so. And also, I would encourage you, click on the button there that uh, gives you the opportunity to become a wrong thinker. The Brian Hyde Show.